Hi, everyone. This is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. This is the first installment of the October 2018 issue. First, an introduction. I'm happy to have Dr. Elizabeth George with me today. Dr. George is this year's recipient of the Olmsted Fellowship Award from the RSNA. She travels to Madison, Wisconsin to spend time in our journal office to learn the editorial processes at radiology. She also spends time with Dr. Jeff Klein at the University of Vermont regarding radiographics. Dr. George is Chief Radiology Resident at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Boston. After medical school in New Delhi, India, she did a two-year research fellowship at the Applied Imaging Science Lab at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She is now a fourth-year radiology resident at the Brigham. Besides being chief resident, she has been very busy. Dr. George received the Toshiba Young Investigator Award at the 2014 Society of Cardiovascular CT Annual Meeting. She received an RSNA Resident Research Prize in 2016. She's been on the ACR Appropriateness Criteria Panels and reviews for several imaging journals. Next year, she's doing a fellowship in neuroradiology at UC San Francisco with Dr. Chris Hess. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you, Dr. Blumke. I'm happy to be here in Madison as part of the RSNA Olmsted Fellowship Program. Before we get started on today's topics, let's find out more about you. You received the main award at a major conference, the Society of Cardiovascular CT. What project did you present at that meeting? That research was about contrast inhomogeneity in abdominal aortic aneurysms. This started from the observation that the lumen of abdominal aortic aneurysms are often not opacified uniformly with IV contrast. We were able to quantify this inhomogeneity with a number. In our study, independent of the aneurysm size, contrast inhomogeneity was associated with rapid aneurysm growth. Interesting concept, and otherwise hard to quantify that sort of observation. What's the mechanism connecting inhomogeneity and rapid aneurysm growth? We think this observation is related to turbulent flow and inflammation, both of which promote aneurysm growth. Excellent. You're also working on some other major projects at the Brigham. What are you working on now? One of the projects I'm working on is about imaging findings of intimate partner violence. This is a very prevalent public health problem. We see it often in our emergency rooms and clinics. Intimate partner violence is under-recognized, especially by us as radiologists. In this project, we're looking at imaging abnormalities seen frequently with violence inflicted by an intimate partner. The underlying hypothesis is that there may be a higher prevalence of violence-related imaging findings in these patients when compared to the general population. I'm also doing some research in neuro-oncology. For example, we've observed that persistently high fluoroethyltyrosine PET uptake after therapy with Avastin is associated with poor prognosis in patients with glioblastoma. I know you are also instrumental on the resident selection committee at the Brigham. What are you looking for in radiology candidates? We're committed towards creating a diverse work environment in a world-class institution. We look for applicants with diverse backgrounds and interests, both in and outside medicine. We value academic excellence along with intellectual curiosity. We also look for applicants with leadership potential and very importantly, collegiality, kindness, and the willingness to give back to society. Okay, just to finish up, one more question for you. You oversee a lot of residents now at the Brigham. What are some of the biggest immediate concerns that you deal with? 
Fortunately, the job market is strong and we're excited about this. But there are also changes in the practice of radiology, larger practices with greater geographic coverage. These are factors that residents have to carefully consider as they start looking for their first job. There are also demands for greater productivity. These definitely affect the residents and their wellness. So we are promoting resident and faculty wellness through strengthening the interpersonal relationships between faculty and trainees. We are also assessing our workflows to prioritize clinical radiology over non-clinical tasks to promote professional fulfillment. And what do the residents think of the impact of AI, artificial intelligence? Our residents are excited about the prospects of AI. Many of us came into radiology because it's a dynamic and technology-oriented field. Residents understand that AI can improve the practice of radiology. It has also opened many new research opportunities with support from the RSNA and industry. While there is an overwhelming amount of information out there, our residents are excited to learn both about what it has to offer as well as its limitations and get involved. Okay. Thank you, Elizabeth. So you're going to help us on our first article for October. Let's move to that next topic. The first article for today is about MRI of breast cancer, and Dr. George is going to help explain this to us. The short title is Neoadjuvant Chemotherapy and Surgery for Breast Cancer, Preoperative MRI Features Associated with Local Recurrence. The first author is Dr. Sung Hoo Shin from Seoul National University Hospital in Seoul, Republic of Korea. First, a bit of introduction. Patients with breast cancers that are large or locally advanced can be treated before surgery with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Some patients will respond well to treatment and have a complete pathologic response. This initial response to therapy is especially favorable for patients who have triple negative breast cancers. Those patients otherwise have the worst prognosis of breast cancer subtypes. Importantly, neoadjuvant chemotherapy can downstage breast cancers. In large studies, 25% of patients who might otherwise require mastectomy can instead undergo breast-conserving surgery. And the patients who had breast-conserving surgery had the same long-term outcomes as those who underwent full mastectomy. There are several factors known to correlate with local recurrence of tumor in patients treated with neoadjuvant therapy. Important adverse factors are younger age, larger tumor size, the presence of lymph nodes, and multifocal breast disease. MRI is extremely sensitive in defining the extent of breast cancer after therapy. We had an earlier podcast on tumor shrinkage tracked by MRI after therapy. Patients who had little spots of nodular enhancement on MRI after neoadjuvant therapy did worse overall. Elizabeth, would you tell us the purpose of today's article? Yeah, certainly. The study purpose was to identify the MRI and clinical features associated with local disease recurrence in patients who underwent breast conservation therapy after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Okay. So how did the authors evaluate the MRIs? The authors identified a large number of women, 548, with operable breast cancer without distant metastasis. All underwent neoadjuvant chemotherapy and preoperative MRI, followed by breast conservation therapy. Many of the patients were downstaged after chemotherapy. That means they originally would have had mastectomy, but 85% were able to have breast conservation after neoadjuvant therapy before surgery. Okay. 
So tell us how the MRI fits in. All patients had a preoperative MRI. The authors looked at a wide range of features. For example, some breast tumors appear as a mass. Other tumors are simply patchy areas of enhancement. Those are non-mass lesions. In addition, the authors looked at rates of enhancement and enhancement patterns. Got it. But besides the MRI features, there are potentially lots of clinical factors that might affect local recurrence and survival. Tumor type and age might be some that come to mind. How did the authors handle the clinical factors? That's right. Another 20 or so clinical and pathologic features were assessed. For example, the authors looked at age, initial clinical stage, tumor molecular subtype, pathologic stage after surgery, and adjuvant treatments such as chemotherapy, endocrine therapy, or targeted HER2 therapy. Excellent. So it might be that some feature, such as lymphatic invasion alone, might be more important than the MRI features. The authors took all of those factors into account. We spoke last month about multivariable statistical analysis. All of the clinical factors plus the MRI findings can be added up in a large regression equation. The stats analysis tells us which factors in the equation are most associated with survival and disease recurrence. So the patients were followed for an average of about five years. Tell us what happened. Overall, the treatment results for these women were excellent. Only 23 of the 548 women had recurrence. The median time to recurrence in those 23 women was about two years. Of the many factors that were studied, only two factors stood out. First, women who were less than 40 years old did much worse. Otherwise, the only other factor that predicted recurrence was one of the MRI features. After neoadjuvant treatment, if there was non-mass enhancement, patients did worse. Elizabeth, that's a surprising result. What about triple negative tumors or lymphatic invasion? It seems those would be even better to predict recurrence than an MRI finding. Yes, it's quite interesting. The authors expected that tumor subtype would be a powerful predictor of tumor recurrence. But apparently, neoadjuvant therapy was sort of an equalizer. Patients with different tumor subtypes had different therapies. So overall, with most patients doing well at five years after therapy, tumor subtype did not predict recurrence. It is also important to note that this study looked at local recurrences either in the same breast or in the lymph nodes and not at distant sites. Makes sense. If the other clinical features and pathologic features are already accounted for by therapy decisions, then perhaps MRI features might stand alone. Any other major results? Yes, there is one other observation that is important in evaluating the MRI scans. There were 23 patients with tumor recurrence. The tumor recurrences were usually in the same breast quadrant as the original tumor in most patients, especially in those who were downstaged after chemotherapy. Okay. So what are the main take-home points of this article? This was a well-designed study in a large number of patients with effective treatment. Certainly, there is a general concept that MRI can help visualize the full tumor extent prior to surgery. But there are two more take-home points. One risk factor is young age. Unfortunately, we can't do anything about that except be very vigilant with those high-risk patients. Perhaps they need more frequent follow-up imaging studies. However, if the patients are young, 
or have non-mass enhancement after neoadjuvant therapy, their risk of recurrence is about threefold greater compared to those older than 40 years or without non-mass enhancement. Secondly, for patients who are downstage to breast-conserving therapy, the most likely site of recurrence is in the same breast quadrant as the original cancer. Thank you. Nice summary. For listeners, it might be worthwhile to take a look at some of the images from this article. It's hard to describe non-mass enhancement. It's the opposite of enhancing mass. But that leaves something to the imagination. But it was remarkable that MRI was often the most important factor that gave us information about local recurrence. Our next article is about low-dose lung cancer screening. The short title is Long-Term Low-Dose CT Follow-Up After Negative Findings at Lung Cancer Screening. The first author is John Cavanaugh from the Department of Cardiothoracic Imaging, Toronto Joint Department of Medical Imaging. Background. The National Lung Cancer Screening Trial established the value of low-dose lung cancer screening in the United States. More than 50,000 participants were in the trial. The study showed 20% lung cancer mortality reduction from low-dose CT screening. Similar trials have been performed in Canada and Europe. The NLST study fueled the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force to issue a grade B recommendation for low-dose lung CT for patients with high risk. High risk is 30-pack-year smoking history and current smoker or quit smoking within the past 15 years. This recommendation came out in 2015. By the way, what is a grade B recommendation? Grade B means there is a high certainty that overall benefit is moderate to substantial. In a practical sense, this means they recommend to provide low-dose CT. There can be a grade A recommendation. Grade A means there is high certainty that the net benefit is substantial. An example of a grade A recommendation from the U.S. Preventive Task Force Services is HIV screening in adolescents and adults aged 15 to 65 years. The NLST trial ended in 2013. During this trial, study participants had screening at baseline one and two years. After a low-dose CT screen, what happens if the CT is negative? Should we screen every year or every 10 years? What happens to those high-risk patients? Purpose. The purpose of the study is to evaluate what happens long-term to these high-risk patients who have negative low-dose CT screening. Methods. The authors studied individuals in a lung cancer screening program called ILCAP. This stands for International Early Lung Cancer Action Program. There were originally about 5,000 people in that study. That study ended screening about eight years ago. The authors looked at the highest-risk study participants in the ILCAP study who had a negative CT screen. There were 327 study participants who they considered highest risk for lung cancer based on older age, strong smoking history, COPD, family history of lung cancer, and elevated body mass index. Results. Of those 327 high-risk individuals, 21%, or 68 had lung cancer in the seven years after screening in the ILCAP study. These 68 individuals are as follows. 19 died of lung cancer in that seven-year interval. 35 others were alive but living with lung cancer. Those patients presented to their physicians with lung cancer without the benefit of lung cancer screening. 
There were 250 remaining people who could be contacted. 50 had other forms of cancer and were excluded. So 200 individuals underwent a low-dose lung CT about seven years after their initial negative CT. 14 of 200 had new cancers found on the follow-up low-dose lung CT, or 7%. Conclusion. Number one. In a high-risk cohort, 20% had lung cancer within seven years of a negative low-dose CT. That seems high. It is high because the authors evaluated very high-risk study participants. To give you an idea, in the NLST trial, the risk of developing lung cancer was estimated at 1.3%. In this paper, the risk was estimated to be about 5% in the study population. Why did they study such high-risk patients? Remember, they had about 5,000 individuals in the original trial. It costs a lot of money and time to contact all of those individuals seven years later and to retrieve and compare the old CT scans. Then there are incidental abnormalities that might occur. Follow-up needs to be scheduled. It's a complex operation. So the authors did the current research as a pilot study, perhaps the worst-case scenario. Or put another way, the individuals with the greatest likelihood to benefit at the lowest cost. Number two, the authors concluded that low-dose lung cancer screening should be continued three years after the initial negative screen. This conclusion was not formally tested in the study. It was based on calculations of cancer rates that they observed. It was the best educated guess as to what might help other high-risk individuals. Finally, what about a more average person with a negative lung cancer screen? Dr. William Black in the Department of Radiology at Dartmouth discusses this in his editorial. He makes the point that screening should probably be more individualized. As far as the federal government is concerned, it may not be worth the government's money to screen you because you are too old or too frail. That seems harsh. Looked at another way, if we find a small 10 millimeter nodule, could you withstand surgery at age 80? What would the quality of your life be if you needed treatment based on lung cancer screening? You may have other medical issues that complicate your life. At some point as we get older, most of us need and want more individualized care. The right screening program for you may be the wrong choice for an individual with complications from diabetes and heart disease. As for now, the USPSTF indicates they are revising their statements on lung cancer screening. I looked recently at their new statements. They list eight multi-part questions where more information is needed. You can read more about this topic in the October issue of Radiology. The next topic is fun and shows you the power of innovation in our field. It shows the power of CT again reinventing itself. The title is Intracardiac Flow at 4D CT, Comparison with 4D Flow MRI. The first author is Dr. Jonas Lance. The study is from Linköping University. That's in Linköping, Sweden. If you're like me and you listened to these podcasts before, then your first question Where's Linköping, Sweden, and what goes on there? Linköping is in the southern portion of Sweden, about 25 miles from the Baltic Sea. The city is more than 700 years old. One of the biggest employers there is Saab, the company that makes cars and aircraft jets. Relevant to this article, the city is known for its university and its high-tech industry. Background. CT is doing more and more work for cardiovascular disease. We used to do a lot of vascular MRI. Most of this is now routinely performed with CT. We reserve MRI for special cases and to avoid radiation. 
The issue is that MRI is so good for evaluating the heart. There is no other technology that can find myocardial scar from an infarct. There is no other technology that easily shows you the extent of myocarditis. Even findings that seem to be invisible can be shown on MRI. Cardiac MRI staff use T1 mapping to diagnose infiltrative diseases in the myocardium, such as amyloidosis. But 90% of cardiac disease is related to the coronary arteries. MRI works for the coronary arteries, but it is time-consuming and remains unreliable. In our hospitals, we are doing more and more coronary CT angiography. I was in Seoul, Korea recently. I was astounded to hear that 50 coronary CTAs were being done each day in one of their major hospitals. There have been two topics that CT of the heart simply could not do. MRI needs to be used. The first has been myocardial scar imaging. This uses late gadolinium enhancement imaging. The other thing CT could not do is to measure cardiac and vascular flow, case closed. Or is it? In 2006, researchers at Johns Hopkins demonstrated that cardiac CT should be able to find scar using late iodine enhancement. In 2012, Dr. Marcelo Nasif in my lab at the NIH showed cardiac CT could detect diffuse myocardial fibrosis that was otherwise detected only with MRI T1 mapping. That article was published in Radiology. Both techniques need to get better before we can use them in the clinic. But that leaves one holy grail of MRI that seemed not to be possible. Measuring cardiac flow. You have almost certainly seen beautiful color images of 4D flow on MRI. The images are astounding. The approach starts out to be simple. You acquire a 3D phase contrast set of images of the heart gated to the cardiac cycle. So 3D images plus the cine motion component is defined as 4D. After that, the images get shipped off to the computer workstation. Just like you see for 2D phase contrast, the 4D flow MRI shows quantitative flow of the heart in milliliters of blood per minute. We can determine the flow across any of the cardiac valves or the flow across cardiac shunts. Most importantly, flow in complex congenital heart malformations can be measured. The method is beginning to become more widely available. It is not only a beautiful technique, but it also works. Shift over to CT. I visited Wake Forest University this week. Dr. Reggie Munden is the chair of radiology there. He was a very gracious host for my recent visit with Dr. Jeff Klein from Radiographics. At a very pleasant dinner, he and his wife, Martha, both reminded me of an important issue for CT. There is an increase in large demand for cardiac CT for newborns with heart disease. Why? Echo is incomplete and hard to evaluate. Some of these patients have extremely complicated anatomy that's hard to see on 2D echo. In comparison, CT of the heart can be done in one heartbeat. The radiation dose is extremely low, much less than one millisievert. Most importantly, no sedation is needed. The infant is swaddled with a blanket to stop motion. Five minutes and one heartbeat later, you're done. Complete 3D information of the complex heart disease in one second. But with CT, we have been missing flow information. The amount of flow in the patent ductus arteriosus matters a great deal. The amount of flow in a cardiac shunt matters to the cardiac surgeon who performs the repair. What to do next? It seems like we need an MRI. Or do we? Can cardiac CT give us the holy grail, information on the rate, the direction, and the amount of blood flow? Purpose. The purpose was to investigate the possibility 
of determining 4D flow in the heart on cardiac CT. Methods. The author studied 12 individuals. In this pilot study, they were adults who also had a coronary CTA. They also underwent 4D flow MRI for comparison. Based on the cardiac anatomy on the CT, they performed flow simulations to calculate blood flow in the heart. This was compared to the MRI. How was this done? How can you simply take a cine CT of the heart and determine the stroke volume and flow rates in the left ventricle? The first step is to track the motion of the heart on the cine CT. This is easy with current software and has been done for many years now. Estimates of heart motion are made every 10 milliseconds of the cardiac cycle. The next step is to use mathematics called computational fluid dynamics. These are the same equations used to calculate coronary artery flow reserve with CT across a stenosis. They are also the same general equations used to determine flow of liquids in pipes in a manufacturing facility. For the heart, it took six to 10 hours to do this computation using 96 CPU cores. Results, it seems to work. The correlation with 4D flow MRI was 0.98 for determining the peak flow rate. To determine stroke volume, the correlation was 0.81. Remember that the maximum correlation coefficient is one, so these numbers are excellent. Conclusion. The authors used existing flow equations to determine intracardiac flow on a cine CT of the heart. The agreement with MRI was excellent. This is yet another accomplishment for CT. Of course, this was a very early proof of concept study. Only 12 adult patients were studied. We need to do more patients with more complex heart disease. Ultimately, we want to know if the same method works for children with complex hearts, and the calculation needs to get faster. But computer speeds are almost never the main issue now. We just buy more chips when we need to. This is an excellent accomplishment, and the authors are to be congratulated. It looks like there is another milestone in advance for CT. Dr. Joe Sheff is at the Medical University of South Carolina. He is a recognized expert in cardiac CT. You can read his editorial about 4D flow with CT in the October issue of Radiology. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. I'd also like to especially thank Dr. George for joining me in this week's podcast. It's my pleasure to join you here on a sunny day here in Madison. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke and Dr. Elizabeth George for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week. Production of Audio for the Arts.